Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Ayala, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop update on soft tissue sarcoma. And today's program is one that I know many of you have waited to hear about. There's a lot of interest in this topic. It's a very important um, type of uh, cancer, a sarcoma. And today's a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And I also particularly want to call out two sarcoma organizations, Sarcoma Alliance and Sarcoma Foundation of America. So those are also wonderful resources as well. And because of our collaboration and your interest in the program, we have over 490 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. States. And we also have some international participants from Australia, Canada, India, Malaysia, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, and United Kingdom and Venezuela. So really a bit of a global call, actually. And today's program is supported by ISI Inc. and Novartis Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, a really wonderful team, really multidisciplinary team of medical speakers, oncologists, radiation oncologists, and surgical oncologists, really to talk to you about um, the treatment update on uh, soft tissue sarcoma. And our first speaker is Dr. Uh, Susan, I'm sorry, um, is Dr. Priscilla Merriam. Dr. Merriam um, is uh, at um, the Harvard Medical School and also at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And Dr. Merriam is going to address overview of soft tissue sarcoma, current standard of care and new treatment approaches, side effect and pain management, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. And just to um, reiterate, Dr. Miriam is a physician in medical oncology, sarcoma and bone cancer treatment center, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, instructor in medicine, Harvard Medical School. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Miriam. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you, everyone, for listening today. I'm honored to be able to talk to you today about the updates in soft tissue sarcoma. Uh, in my time today, I will cover an overview in general of soft tissue sarcoma, as well as current standard of care, uh, and uh, new treatment approaches, side effects, and pain management, and some key questions to ask your uh, care providers. So sarcomas overall are rare. Uh, there are about 16,000 new cases diagnosed per year in the United States. Additionally, sarcomas are heterogeneous which means there are multiple types of sarcomas. There are at least 50 different types, uh, more depending on how you break it down. And each of these types of sarcomas have different characteristics. Sarcomas develop from a type of cell in the body that normally would become part of a connective or a supportive tissue in the body, like fat or muscle or bone. So you may have heard of types of sarcomas like liposarcoma or osteosarcoma. Uh, similar to those to structures in the body like fat or bone. Because connective tissues can be found throughout the body, sarcomas can arise anywhere in the body. This is uh, different than, say, lung cancer, where a lung cancer would develop in the lung or a pancreatic cancer would develop in the pancreas. So I'll speak generally about standard of care, and then I'll turn it over to Dr. Delaney to speak about uh, radiation aspects of management of sarcomas, and Dr. Mullinax 
uh, our, sarco our sarcoma surgery specialist to speak about surgery. One of the nice things about our uh, conference today is that the three of us are speaking together in a multidisciplinary fashion, which is an ideal approach for the management of sarcomas. So when sarcoma is limited to one area of the body, your team may recommend surgery alone to remove the sarcoma, or your team may recommend the addition of radiation or chemotherapy, or both, uh, either before or after surgery. The decision to recommend chemotherapy or radiation will depend on a number of factors, including the type of sarcoma you have, the location of your sarcoma, and sometimes features of your sarcoma that are uh, described by the pathologist who reviews your tumor under the microscope. For some people, sarcoma comes back after they have it removed by surgery, and for other people, sarcoma, when it is discovered, is found in multiple places in the body. For people in these situations, treatments like chemotherapy or medicines that go throughout the body may be appropriate. Doxorubicin is a, a chemotherapy drug that is generally considered the standard first-line medication for many types of sarcoma, but not all types of sarcoma. This is one of the situations in which it's so important to understand your subtype of sarcoma because depending on the subtype of sarcoma, doxorubicin may be the appropriate first drug, but for other types such as GIST or gastrointestinal stromal tumor, the first line of, of treatment would be a medicine called imatinib. If, uh, for instance, for something like a rhabdomyosarcoma, we might recommend a certain combination of chemotherapies rather than just doxorubicin. In general, many types of medicines are available to medical oncologists to treat sarcomas. I will review some of the newer medications that the medical oncologist has uh, to use. One is an oral medication, which is called pazopinib. That's for people with sarcoma who have uh, received chemotherapy previously. In studies, pazopinib has seen to slow down the growth of the sarcoma in some patients, and so that can be an important tool for us. Additionally, the drug called trabectidin was approved in the last several years by the FDA. This is a drug that actually was initially found in the sea. It uh, was uh, derived from a poison that's made by sea squirts, and now it's made in the lab. Uh, it was approved by the FDA recently, particularly for benefits seen in patients with leiomyosarcoma and liposarcoma. The drug has been used for many years. In fact, actually, it was approved many years prior in uh, Europe, for example, and so worldwide, there's a lot of experience with using this drug, and so it's generally well understood in terms of its toxicities and its benefits. Additionally, uh, a chemotherapy drug, which is given intravenously, called aribulin, was approved recently by the, um, by the FDA for liposarcomas. We actually think that it may also benefit patients with leiomyosarcoma uh, because patients in the study did seem to have benefit when they received the aribulin as well. The most recently approved drug is a drug called olaritumab. And olaritumab is used now uh, in combination with the drug doxorubicin, which I mentioned uh, originally. Olaritumab is a medication that's part of a class of drugs called monoclonal antibodies. And monoclonal antibodies are similar to antibodies that your, your own body makes in response to something foreign in the body. These drugs that are given to you are antibodies that are made in the lab. Olaritumab targets 
something called PDGFR-alpha, which is a protein that can help some cancers grow. The idea is that if you target this, uh, this protein, that you may slow the tumor, the, the growth of the sarcoma, or help it to shrink. The FDA approved olaritumab based on a relatively small study, a small number of patients in a study of patients who got olaritumab plus doxorubicin who seemed to have a benefit. We're waiting right now for results from a larger study that used a similar type of design to see if it confirms the results that we saw in the original study with olaritumab. But right now, the combination of doxorubicin plus olaritumab is really something that we think about for any patient we would have originally considered doxorubicin alone. Speaking about symptom management, there are some things that I think it's important for you to know to make sure that you're keeping an open uh, dialogue with your providers. It's important to talk with your providers prior to starting any type of treatment, whether it's chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, any oral medicines, to discuss what types of side effects you might anticipate. That can help you be prepared, whether there's some way to uh, alleviate the symptom or simply to know that the symptom may arise so that you know then to speak with your team when you're experiencing with it. We know most recently at the uh, annual oncology meeting at ASCO, there was a presentation that uh, patients, there was a study of patients who were uh, reporting their symptoms frequently to their study team. And it turned out that patients who reported symptoms frequently did better over well, uh, overall. And therefore, it helps, to, um, it helps patients do better, and it helps the care team know how to take care of their patients. When you see your providers, it's worth asking if there's a team of specialists that are available in symptom management. This uh, approach is called palliative care, and their role is to help people manage symptoms that are associated with cancer or with treatments for cancer, and that can be a very powerful tool. There are different causes for symptoms like pain or nausea, and your team may want to try different approaches. That could include something like over-the-counter medications, or medications that could help with pain from nerve damage, for example. So there may be more options than you may have imagined for treating your symptoms. Additionally, there are many approaches to symptom management. Sometimes that will be oral medications prescribed by your team. Other times it might be topical treatments. Additionally, things like massage or exercise are very important in managing symptoms as well. So finally, I'd like to just um, discuss some questions that you may want to think about when you're seeing your healthcare team. Uh, one of the most important questions that, uh, that I think is important to understand and to ask is to ask what type of sarcoma you have. As I mentioned before, different types of sarcoma may behave very differently and may need different types of treatment. For example, treatment of a type of sarcoma called osteosarcoma is very different from a treatment of another type called leiomyosarcoma. You may also ask if your tumor has been examined by a pathologist who is experienced in diagnosing sarcomas. Sarcomas can be uh, sometimes challenging to diagnose, and this can be critical in helping to confirm, one, that it is sarcoma, and then also to determine the type of sarcoma and then help your team determine what the best treatments might be for you. It's important to ask where the sarcoma is in your body and to ask your providers what they're hoping to achieve with the treatment that they're recommending. I would make sure to ask your providers whether there are any clinical trials that might be right for you. And clinical trials can be uh, an important part of your treatment anytime 
from the moment that you learn that, that you've been diagnosed with sarcoma. So I'd be sure to ask that question and then keep asking the question because clinical trials are important for us uh, to learn more about how to treat people the best that we can with sarcoma. And then finally, I'd urge you to, um, to ask your providers and consider whether there are any groups or resources that might help you with some of the financial aspects of treatment or of seeking consultations or of participating in clinical trials because that is, for many people, that's a very important consideration. So I'd like to turn over now to, uh, to my colleague, Dr. Delaney, uh, to, the, um, to hear about radiation oncology for sarcoma. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Miriam. That was wonderful and very informative. And, and particularly, you're calling out to the a study that uh, demonstrated that um, contacting your healthcare team with any concerns or symptoms that you are having on a regular basis um, really will enhance um, how you're going to do because they'll know, have a better idea of how you're doing. So that was such an important point and one that we'll probably want to discuss more during the Q&A. That's really excellent. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Thomas Delaney. Dr. Delaney is Andres Soriano, Professor of Radiation Oncology, Harvard Medical School, Radiation Oncologist, Department of Radiation Oncology. He's Medical Director, Francis H. Burr Proton Therapy Center, and Co-Director, Center for Sarcoma and Connective Tissue Oncology, Massachusetts General Hospital. And Dr. Delaney is going to address the role of radiation oncology, the types of radiation treatments, clinical trials, and follow-up care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Delaney. Thank you, Carolyn. For patients who are not familiar with radiation therapy, this treatment might sound intimidating. What I thought would be important today uh, would be for me to help patients understand how this, in fact, can be a very helpful and hopefully well-tolerated treatment uh, for their sarcoma. Radiation therapy refers to the use of focused high-energy x-rays or other particles to kill cancer cells. The physician who specializes in giving radiation therapy to treat cancer is called a radiation oncologist, and they're an important member of the sarcoma care team. Uh, radiation therapy is often used in conjunction with surgery for the treatment of the sarcoma at the site uh, where it arises. We refer to this as the primary tumor site because there's frequently microscopic extension of tumor beyond the visible tumor. If one were to do more radical surgery to remove uh, more tissue to eradicate this microscopic disease beyond the visible tumor, uh, there can be a risk of uh, loss of loss or uh, deterioration of uh, limb function for sarcomas arising in the limb. And then in addition, uh, surgery to obtain uh, wide margins around the tumor uh, may not be possible in a number of anatomic locations, uh, such as the head and neck region or the, the back of the abdomen, which we refer to as the, the retroperitoneum. Uh, since sarcoma is rare, it's very important to talk with a radiation oncologist who has experience treating multiple patients with sarcoma on a regular basis. Because the radiation doses required to kill microscopic cancer cells are lower than those uh, to, to uh, eradicate a visible tumor, the combination of removal of the visible tumor by the surgeon uh, in conjunction with a radiation dose that can eradicate residual microscopic disease, in fact, results in a very high rate of local tumor control uh, in the uh, tumors that arise in the arms and legs, for example. Uh, we're able to control the, the tumor at the primary site with good functional results in uh, over 90% of patients. And in fact, there are some patients uh, who have uh, small uh, sarcomas, and uh, these are generally uh, in, in the thigh and uh, often small and, and low-grade, uh, which refer refers to the fact they aren't likely to spread to other parts of the body. That can also be adequately treated with surgery uh, with a wide margin, and uh, such patients uh, would not, in fact, uh, need any additional radiation treatments. 
Uh, in addition, there are some patients with sarcomas uh, generally in the head and neck region or the spine region where cancer surgery would be difficult and uh, radiation might be considered as an alternative to surgery, although this usually requires uh, considerably higher doses of radiation and often some uh, sophisticated uh, radiation techniques that I'll mention below. So the, the different ways of uh, delivering radiation include what's called external beam uh, radiation therapy. This is the most common type of radiation uh, treatment, and the, the radiation is delivered uh, by a machine which is outside the body. The patient is uh, placed uh, in, a, in a shielded room on a table, and the, the radiation uh, machine called the linear accelerator uh, rotates uh, around the tumor, and the radiation is focused uh, onto the tumor. Uh, when the radiation treatment is given by radiation sources that are placed into or onto the body in close physical proximity to the tumor, uh, this is called uh, brachytherapy, and this is a, a, a kind of treatment uh, which is used for, for patients with sarcomas. Uh, radiation therapy uh, treatment uh, regimen or schedule usually consists of a specific number of treatments over a set period of time, uh, generally uh, five to seven uh, treatments uh, uh, per, per week uh, over uh, five to seven weeks. Uh, radiation therapy uh, can be done before surgery, uh, and in fact, in, in a number of sites, it's often done before surgery, to sterilize the tumor cells at the edge of the visible tumor. Uh, this can often allow for smaller radiation fields compared to post-operative radiation fields. Uh, in, in, in addition, uh, radiation can also be used in conjunction with chemotherapy, uh, particularly for large uh, tumors that are uh, what we call high-grade tumors, uh, tumors that are aggressive and also have the cap uh, capacity to spread beyond the uh, uh, primary tumor site to elsewhere in the body. Uh, radiation can also be done after surgery to kill any uh, cancer cells left behind. Uh, one important feature of radiation is that it can uh, make it possible for the surgeon to do a lesser surgical procedure, often preserving critical structures uh, such as nerves or blood vessels in the arm or the leg uh, if the sarcoma is located in one of those places. Uh, nevertheless, radiation therapy can also affect uh, normal cells, uh, uh, but because it's focused around the tumor, the side effects are generally limited uh, to the uh, area immediately around uh, the tumor. Uh, newer radiation techniques have developed over the last 15 years that have improved the ability to treat the tumor and spare normal tissue. Uh, and many patients have uh, heard or, of these or have been treated by them. Uh, th these include uh, intensity modulated X-ray treatment uh, as well as proton therapy. Intensity modulated X-ray treatment uh, uses many small beams of radiation that are modified as the radiation machine rotates around the body, and it's frequently used now for sarcomas. Uh, it focuses more radiation on the tumor site and less on normal tissues, and as a result, there are fewer side effects than there were in the past. Some of the side effects from radiation therapy uh, can include fatigue, uh, skin reactions uh, if, the, if the patient is being uh, treated for a tumor in the abdomen, uh, nausea, uh, upsets, upset stomach, and uh, loose bowel movements. Uh, in the short term, around the immediate time of treatment, uh, radiation can cause an effect on the skin that looks like a sunburn. It's uh, uh, generally well treated with creams to keep the, the skin soft and help uh, relieve discomfort. Uh, one important uh, effect of uh, radiation therapy can be an effect on wound healing, and it's, that's why it's important to be treated by a, a team of uh, specialists with a radiation oncologist working closely with a surgeon to reduce the, uh, the impact of radiation therapy on, on, on wound healing. In the long term, radiation can cause thickening of the tissues undergoing surgery and radiation uh, with modern uh, techniques. Uh, this will usually not, however, have a significant uh, impact on function of an arm or leg. 
in some locations, uh, such as in the uh, groin, uh, the uh, combination of surgery and radiation therapy can unfortunately uh, result in uh, swelling uh, of the leg. And uh, there are, however, uh, interventions that can uh, minimize that. So that's important to discuss uh, with your uh, treating physicians. One uh, a rare but uh, unfortunate uh, impact of, a, of uh, radiation for a sarcoma can be the uh, cause of a, a second uh, cancer uh, in the area which is radiated. Uh, uh, this fortunately is a rare event, uh, happens about uh, one or two uh, patients uh, uh, who are followed uh, in uh, uh, for 10 years after treatment, so it's about 0.1 to 0.2% uh, risk at 10 years. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, this is one uh, important thing that uh, clinicians uh, who are managing sarcomas will follow patients who have been treated with radiation uh, to examine the area to, met, to uh, uh, make sure the patient hasn't developed a, a second cancer related to the prior radiation treatment. For the majority of patients uh, treated uh, with radiation therapy, uh, early side effects uh, subside three to four weeks uh, after treatment is finished. One other recent uh, radiation technique uh, which is increasingly being used is called proton beam radiation. Uh, this uses uh, charged particles that travel a certain distance and stop. Uh, this uh, results in less uh, radiation dose to normal tissue than other forms of external radiation, including intensity modulated radiation. Uh, they uh, are likely to have a, a significant role for uh, particularly pediatric uh, patients uh, to reduce the side effects of radiation on normal tissues, but they're also being uh, used for some sarcomas, particularly those uh, in the spine and the pelvis that are uh, not uh, easily um, removed by surgery. Uh, one other uh, radiation technique you may have heard about uh, that I mentioned earlier is called uh, brachytherapy. Uh, this refers to the insertion of uh, radiation seeds uh, through thin tubes called catheters uh, directly into or on the affected uh, area of the body. Uh, in some patients, this is done at the time of surgical removal of the tumor. Uh, it's um, this uh, generally allows for a shorter course of radiation and localizes the radiation uh, very um, closely uh, to the area around where the catheters are placed uh, in the tumor bed. Uh, this nevertheless requires uh, highly specialized skills and special training and is generally only available in certain hospitals. Uh, the setup for, for brachytherapy, as I mentioned, usually starts in the operating room where catheters are placed. Uh, radiation sources are then placed into the catheters uh, using a machine uh, that connects to the catheters. Uh, this is generally done uh, once or twice daily uh, in the radiation oncology uh, department uh, while the patient is still in the hospital. Uh, these catheters are then removed uh, um, after the radiation uh, treatments are delivered uh, and the patient is ready to be discharged from the hospital. In some uh, hospitals, uh, part of the planned radiation therapy uh, can be given uh, during surgery. Uh, this is referred to as intraoperative radiation. Again, this is a technique uh, to deliver uh, a highly localized uh, radiation with uh, what are called electrons. They travel a, a limited distance uh, and uh, to treat an area of, uh, of uh, the tumor which abuts the normal tissue that cannot be removed. Um, these uh, particles travel a short distance and they generally just treat the surface and they tend to have uh, relatively uh, localized radiation treatment and uh, some normal tissues such as the bowel can be moved out of the radiation field. So it's a very nice technique to uh, uh, increase the radiation dose to an area that needs a higher radiation dose while sparing adjacent uh, normal tissue. One other treatment that uh, patients may have heard about recently is called stereotactic uh, body radiation therapy. Uh, this is a highly focused form of radiation treatment, uh, generally one to five treatments over a one to two uh, week uh, 
period, uh, generally uh, to areas where sarcoma has spread, but often in just a, a small number of sites, uh, such as a, a handful of uh, lung nodules that cannot be removed or isolated uh, recurrence of tumor in the liver or bone. And this highly focused uh, approach allows uh, highly uh, conformal radiation uh, to a high dose that can sterilize uh, these uh, limited sites of metastatic disease. Uh, earlier, uh, Dr. Uh, Miriam had uh, mentioned the importance of clinical trials, and I wanted to expand upon that uh, somewhat further. Uh, in the setting of soft tissue sarcoma, uh, local treatment of uh, tumors in the extremities often results in excellent control of the tumor at the site where the tumor arises. Uh, nevertheless, patients with tumors that appear aggressive under the microscope, uh, we call these high-grade tumors, and in particular, uh, those tumors uh, that are larger than two inches uh, in size uh, have a significant risk of spread of the tumor to distant sites, uh, in particular the lungs. Unfortunately, conventional chemotherapy approaches have shown only modest uh, benefit. Uh, new treatment uh, approaches are tested in clinical trials, which test new treatment strategies that have shown promise uh, in the laboratory. For extremity sarcomas, uh, currently these include uh, targeted chemotherapies aimed at uh, dysregulated cell growth pathways in the tumor, as well as uh, new immunologic approaches, uh, molecules called checkpoint inhibitors uh, that allow the immune system to attack the tumor, which have shown benefits for melanomas, lung cancers, uh, head and neck, and some other cancers are, are now being combined with preoperative radiation and surgery and will be compared to the outcome with standard preoperative radiation and surgery for patients with extremity sarcomas. For patients with sarcomas in the retroperitoneum, uh, the back of the abdomen, where it's nearly impossible for the surgeon to obtain a wide surgical margin around the tumor, an ongoing clinical study has recently completed accrual uh, compared the outcome of preoperative radiation and surgery versus surgery alone. Another ongoing study is assessing the potential of using higher radiation doses in this setting to an area where it's difficult for the surgeon to get a wide margin, and these, this radiation is being delivered either with protons or intensity modulated radiation. In fact, it would be great to have more clinical trials open for sarcoma patients because it is a rare cancer. It can at times be challenging for sarcoma researchers to find fundings to support clinical trials of new research ideas. Uh, it, as uh, Dr. Miriam mentioned, is also important for patients to ask their caregivers if they're eligible for any clinical studies so that they might have access to new treatments being tested in clinical trials. Clinical trials uh, listings can also be accessed uh, on, the, on the web. Uh, the, the National Cancer Institute has a website, clinicaltrials.gov, that uh, will allow searching by specific diagnoses, including sarcoma. Uh, in the last uh, minute, I wanted to make a couple of comments about follow-up care uh, for sarcoma patients as well as cancer survivorship. After the completion of treatment, follow-up care uh, may include physical therapy, rehabilitation to optimize limb function for patients with tumors in the arms and the legs. And there is also what we refer to uh, as surveillance care, which refers to regular visits uh, with the treatment team to monitor the uh, primary uh, site where the tumor was uh, re surgically removed or, or radiated. These visits are initially scheduled at about three-month intervals for the first two to three years, and then four to six-month intervals out to five years, and then generally yearly uh, out to 10 years. At these visits, there'll be physical examination of the primary site of the tumor, uh, in, and in some locations, such as the abdomen, the patients will have uh, abdominal uh, CT or MRI scan to examine uh, the, uh, the primary site if it's not uh, easily examined. 
In addition, there'll be uh, CT scans of the, the chest uh, to include the liver to see if there's any evidence of spread of the tumor to the lungs or the liver. In general, with soft tissue sarcomas, the highest risk of spread is in the first uh, three years. So we, we tend to see patients more frequently and then somewhat less frequently uh, thereafter. Uh, for some patients, if the tumor's uh, not been removed, patients may also have a PET-CT scan, which uses a sugar tag with a radioactive tracer to, to assess whether there's any residual metabolic activity uh, in the treated tumor. Uh, we also use these visits to identify and address any late side effects of, of, of cancer treatment. At this point, uh, we're going to move on uh, to Dr. John uh, Molinax, who's going to address the role of surgery in the treatment of soft tissue sarcomas. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Delaney. That was outstanding, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is, indeed, Dr. John Molinex. Dr. Molinex is a sarcoma surgical oncologist, and he's assistant member, surgical oncology, sarcoma department, immunology department, H.C. Moffitt Cancer Center and Research Institute. Dr. Molnix will address the role of surgery in the treatment of soft tissue sarcoma, the importance of the pathology report, pain management, and quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Mullenix. Thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate the time to talk, and I appreciate the comments earlier by Drs. Delaney and Merriam regarding uh, medical oncology and radiation oncology. Uh, so, you know, I think to first talk about the role of surgery, you need to talk about the time before the consult. So oftentimes patients are referred to a surgeon either from their primary care physician or perhaps from another uh, surgeon who may have already made a diagnosis of a soft tissue neoplasm or a sarcoma. I think before you see um, the surgeon, the first thing I always tell patients is really to sit down and write out a timeline of what's happened. So when did you first notice the lump or bump? When did you first uh, have a CAT scan? When was the biopsy performed? It's often helpful for patients to get a calendar and put these dates in a calendar because you're going to be seeing lots of different physicians, and it's hard to retell that story, and you want to be sure those details are correct. Um, you want to understand what the surgeon, uh, the training of the surgeon that you're going to see. Uh, I kind of tell patients in, in a general practice, don't Google. Uh, you get a diagnosis, and the first thing we do these days is get on Google and, and type it in and, and see what's out there. I think if you're looking at your physician, the best thing to do is to go to the institution's webpage and understand, you know, what's their training and, and what's their background. Do they work in a team or are they work in a solo practice? Um, the surgeons, uh, you know, that we would certainly recommend would be those that work in a, in a group, like we're talking to you today, and in concert with the medication, medical oncologist and radiation oncologist, because as you've heard already, uh, these modalities are not silos, and they need to be put together in a comprehensive treatment plan, um, and, and the timing of, of each modality is incredibly important. You want to be sure that uh, the person you're seeing is, is seen patients like you before. As Dr. Merriam mentioned, sarcoma is a rare diagnosis, and oftentimes uh, physicians and surgeons haven't seen many uh, and don't see them often. And so the, the as as rapidly as we have changes in the treatment of these uh, types of tumors, it's important to see someone who uh, takes care of patients like you often. Um, at that initial visit with the surgeon, really kind of the most important thing is obviously, as I said, the timeline, but the, the to bring the CD of the images that you may have had done before, you know, that, that consultation with the surgeon is, is ultimately going to be about is this tumor that they've, someone's diagnosed you with, is it resectable, can it be removed, and, and the pictures are really the key there. Oftentimes, patients will bring a, a paper printout report or they get faxed from an outside uh, uh, referring physician, and, and it's really the images that are key. So I recommend any imaging you have along the diagnostic course, ask that radiology practice for the CD of those images and take those with you. 
Um, the pathology report from a biopsy that may have done, been done prior to referral is also important. Um, bring that report with you. Um, often, you know, as when you're referred to see a surgeon, the referring physician will often say, "Oh, we'll send all the records." But sometimes those records don't come, or they come late after your visit. And it's helpful if you can bring as many of those records as possible. Um, if if you see that surgeon on the very first day and they see you and they look at your films and they evaluate your case and they right off the bat schedule and recommend an operation. I think it's under it's important to understand, um, you know, if there are other options or other treatment modalities. Would radiation before surgery be helpful for you? Is there a clinical trial, as Dr. Merriam mentioned, of of a neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy strategy? Uh, could that be helpful? And ask these questions. Many, many times that first visit with a surgeon does not result in a final treatment plan, and I don't think that that should discourage you at all. Sometimes patients are uh, they see the surgeon in referral and they expect that they're going to have all of their answers in one day, but a lot of times there's missing information or other tests that need to be performed, and that's not a bad thing. Oftentimes it's a good thing um, that to take a deep breath, step back, and reevaluate the data. Um, I think when that time comes that... You have that consultation and the and you have the discussion about the resection of your tumor. There's a few important things about that surgical discussion. First, as I said, you want to understand how that resection relates to the other modalities of treatment. So, for example, are we going to have an operation and then will you recommend chemotherapy or then will I see a medical oncologist? After my operation, will I need radiation therapy and how does that look? If those modalities are going to be employed, it's, it's generally uh, favorable for you to see that medical oncologist or radiation oncologist before your operation so that you have that relationship and so that they understand and work with that surgeon to plan your, your treatment plan uh, from start to finish. Uh, the expected morbidity of the operation, when we talk about this, uh, we, we talk about what what might be different for you after this tumor is removed. For those in the extremities, um, the the loss of a particular motor function is important and should be discussed. Another important uh, point to discuss is something called lymphedema. This is often talked about with breast cancer patients, but for sarcoma patients that have uh, tumors in the uh, groin or the axilla, uh, oftentimes the arm or legs can, can have significant lymphedema after resection, and especially if radiation therapy is used as well. These discussions are important up front before surgery, and they help you to understand what to expect after surgery. The expected post-operative course is also important, so... Um, People become so focused on whether or not it's resectable or can I have surgery or when can I have surgery, but understanding what it's going to be like both in the hospital for the first few days after surgery and then at home. Are there services such as home physical therapy required? Uh, will it, you need to go to a rehab facility if it's a large and complex resection? These are important questions to ask and to plan for uh, before that planned resection. Um, the inpatient services of, of the institution where the operation is going to be performed are important things such as physical therapy, occupational therapy, nutrition, and social work. Um, these will all help to coordinate your care as you transition after the operative in the post-operative period back to home. Um, I think something that kind of goes lost in all of these discussions is is the review of sort of your insurance plan and, and how the, that will fit in. I think everyone's insurance these days is so different, and ultimately that financial stress can be a significant stress on patients. And I think knowing what's covered, things like home physical therapy or home health care, before your operation can relieve stress after the operation um, uh, because you have time to work through those those challenges. Ultimately, the resection itself, uh, from a surgical standpoint, obviously we want a wide resection and a complete resection. I think one subtle point to make here is really relative to the grade of your disease. So, 
for patients with high-grade tumors, uh, we know that we do need, you know, a wide margin, and, and we are aggressive in the resection to, to obtain that, sometimes accepting morbidity uh, in, the, in, um, in the effort to obtain good local control. However, for those low-grade tumors, something like a well-differentiated liposarcoma or a atypical lipomatous tumor in the extremity, uh, we, we would think twice about resecting uh, structure that would lead to long-term morbidity. And I think those subtle points are ones that your surgeon should discuss with you. Um, if, if there is some discussion of significant morbidity, I think it's important to ask, is there another way? Is there something else we can do? Is there is there another strategy? That's especially important with uh, when a conversation leads toward amputation. Um, I think limb salvage is uh, something that absolutely should be discussed, and and all sarcoma centers uh, certainly strive for limb salvage. And so, understanding the need uh, for amputation when it's when it's recommended is very important, and you sh you should feel comfortable with that with that recommendation. Um, Retroperitoneal and pelvic tumors, as Dr. Delaney mentioned, are, are often difficult to obtain wide negative margins, and and so those cases um, oftentimes require resection of other of other organs, most commonly the kidney um, and the small and the bowel. Understanding the ramifications of of losing a kidney, depending on your general medical status, are important and should be discussed before the operation. Um, I think. With the pelvic tumors, most specifically the the cases that require a special operation called a hemipelvectomy, those those are uh, complex operations which require surgical teams of surgical oncologists and orthopedic oncologists. Um, before your resection, it's important to understand what components of that operation each team will be doing and to follow up with after. Um, we we find that sometimes patients become frustrated. Uh, when they have, a, for example, a colostomy and they're calling the orthopedic surgeon with questions. I think having a clear sense of which team members um, have a responsibility for what part of your case before surgery is something that really alleviates a lot of stress afterward. In terms of the pathology report, uh, the most important is really that prior biopsy at that initial consultation. If you've had a biopsy, as I said, the uh, the, the pathology report is important, but most most of us would also request the slides to have our pathologist review that, that diagnosis. About 10% of the time there can be a change in the diagnosis which can change your care, um, and so it's important to have that diagnosis solidified. Many times these uh, preliminary biopsies reveal a uh, vague diagnosis, something like a malignant neoplasm or a spindle cell neoplasm, but that histologic subtype is important. Sometimes this requires a second biopsy or even an incisional biopsy, which is a surgical biopsy that should be done only really by the surgeon that's ultimately going to perform that resection. Um, the core biopsy technique is really the standard of care and should be done uh, for the diagnosis, uh, preferably under image guidance. The pathology report from the resection, there are a few key things that, that your surgeon should discuss with you in that postoperative visit. The first is the ultimate histologic subtype. Uh, second is the grade of the tumor, whether it's high or low grade and then the margins to understand if the tumor was completely resected or if there are margins that, that were positive. The next uh, discussion to center around, well, what's the next step? Is it some sort of adjuvant therapy, uh, being chemotherapy or radiation therapy? Again, this really should have had at least preliminary discussions before the resection, but now is the time after the operation with the pathology report from the final specimen to really understand what, what's next. Um, Again, questions about clinical trials uh, are important here again to discuss that with, with your surgeon and have a conversation about what you may or may not be eligible for and why. Talk a little bit about pain management. Um, I think this should be really part of the preoperative discussion. Um, things that, that specifically uh, to discuss would be 
epidural anesthesia, especially for retroperitoneal cases, we employ that here at Moffitt with some fantastic results uh, to the patient. And the epidural technique is very similar to the uh, type of pain um, uh, medication delivery system that's used for childbirth. Uh, and for open abdominal operations, patients have uh, very nice pain relief postoperatively with a lower narcotic requirement. For many patients, a patient-controlled analgesia or PCA is standard. This is where uh, the IV pain medication is hooked to a pump and the patient delivers it themselves. Um, it's a standard way to deliver postoperative pain medication, but really should be used limited within the first couple days after surgery. Transition to oral pain medication is important. And for those uh, patients that have not had a uh, history of using narcotics before the operation, really shouldn't need uh, much oral narcotic medication after surgery. I think it's important to talk with your surgeon about, you know, how many you should be taking, what's expected, um, and many times after discharge from the hospital, just a couple days um, to to a week is really all that's required. And, and transitioning to over-the-counter medications such as NSAIDs or Tylenol um, is a strategy that should be discussed on discharge. And lastly, I'll touch on the quality of life concerns. I think, you know, the diagnosis of sarcoma or any, any malignancy is uh, life-altering for many patients. And, and unfortunately, with sarcoma, it's many young patients that are affected uh, with sarcomas. I think fitting in the treatment with uh, big life goals and life events is important for patients. And oftentimes, I have patients that are in surveillance that say, you know, can I can I push my surveillance out one month because my my daughter's getting married or I'm graduating from college. And I think having these discussions with your surgeon, your medical oncologist, your radiation oncologist, that person that's um, your primary caregiver throughout the course is important because certainly some of these schedules can be changed and, and it's important to, to have those discussions and meet those life events. Um, there, We have many patients here in, in Florida where I practice that, that are uh, – by coastal from the south to the north, not from the east to the west. And uh, for these patients, I think, you know, in the winter or in the summer, they're in different places. And so having a discussion about your surveillance schedule and how that can be uh, worked in with your your uh, living environment is important. Um, getting referrals to folks where, where you might have a second home and having those physicians talk and have a conversation about the care is extremely important so things don't get dropped. Uh, for these patients, Many times they kind of have to be the keeper of their surveillance schedule and always be the one to know when their next imaging or their next test is, is scheduled. And, and it's important to, to have those physicians that may be treating you in two locations uh, have an open dialogue. I also want to mention this part a little bit about special populations. As I said many patients with sarcoma are young patients. And so for those patients that are aged 15 to 39, we call those adolescent young adults. And Many sarcoma programs have an AYA program, as we do here at Moffitt, that has a, a navigator, uh, a nurse navigator, whose entire job is really to, to steer the course and, and be sure that you are uh, on track with tests and imaging and results, et cetera. I think asking about these types of resources is important at diagnosis with any member of your, of your treating team. Also, the social worker, uh, both in the outpatient and inpatient setting, is incredibly important. Uh, both uh, from coordinating the home health care needs, also with financial stresses and, and how to navigate resources that might be available to you. Um, I think that's really kind of concludes my comments regarding uh, the surgical experience during uh, after the diagnosis of sarcoma, and I look forward to your questions. Thanks. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Malnick. That was wonderful and very comprehensive and a lot of excellent information for everybody. So I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And 
Um, before we take questions, I just want to say a few words about the services that you can access from Cancer Care. Um, I'll keep them brief. Um, Cancer Care now does have a fund. Actually, I just want to mention that immediately for people in um, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands and also impacted by Maria who are struggling with cancer and may need financial assistance. And so they can just simply contact Cancer Care um, at 1-800-813-4673 or may visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Org. And actually, we will be sending all that information to you in the materials you get um, for the evaluation form after today's program. In addition, Cancer Care does offer financial assistance for many other uh, needs that people experience when they're undergoing cancer treatment. So it's a good place to call if you're struggling with financial needs. Um, we also offer um, counseling services by trained oncology social workers. And indeed, um, it's really someone that you can talk to. And many of you, because you are both all of the United States and also some internationally and have preferences for using technology, we do talk to people on the telephone and we also do online counseling and we also have online support groups, um, actually over 150 different types of online support groups for different types of ages, different types of cancer, um, so that they're basically, um, it's available and you can check our, at our website for the different types of groups. And we also have a young adult program, a children's program, teen program, and programs with people, older adults and everyone along, all ages really. Um, we have specialty programs for people um, with those concerns as well. We do offer lots of these types of workshops and um, we also have publications that you can access from us as well. Um, so um, with that being said now, we have um, lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask um, Ayala to actually explain to you how to queue up for questions. I know some of you are already doing this already, so I see some online questions, but I want everyone to have a chance to ask a question. So Ayala, if you could explain and bring all of our speakers on board, and we'll take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your question, I will definitely, at the end of the call, give you very clear direction in terms of how to get your questions answered. Ayala? <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question is from Harriet W. Your line is now open. Thank you. Um, I was diagnosed with uterine lyomyo, and a fair amount of the area was necrotic. Does, what does, what's the implication of having necrotic tissue? Does that speed the spread? Does it slow it down? It was and it was a fibroid where the sarcoma was discovered. And if it does come back in a different part of the body, is it still uterine myomyo? Thank you. Actually, for that question, Harriet. Um, Dr. Miriam, would you want to begin to address this question in a general way? And, of course, we do recommend, Harriet, that you would then take this information back to training healthcare team. Harriet? Mm -hmm. Um, hi, Harriet. Hi, it's Priscilla Merriam. Um, so, you know, it's hard for us to know necessarily what the meaning might be of necrosis when we see it in a pathology report or when a pathologist reviews it. Necrosis is uh, it's basically dead cells, and what it suggests is that uh, cells, all cells need uh, nutrition, need blood supply in order to live, whether they're cancer cells or healthy cells. And necrosis suggests that those cells, for some reason, were not able to get adequate nutrition. Sometimes that can just be an, an aspect of the tumor. Other times it can su suggest that the tumor may have been growing at a pace that made it so that it was hard for the tumors to uh, grow enough blood supply to get adequate nutrition. But, you know, we don't have a way or that I can say for sure that 
seeing necrosis means one thing or another in terms of how your uh, leiomyosarcoma may behave over the long term. For people who have sarcoma removed in one part of the body, like a, a leiomyosarcoma found in the uterus, which is a very common place that we see leiomyosarcoma, if the sarcoma is discovered somewhere else, such as the lungs, which is a common place that we would see it uh, uh, if it were to spread, uh, it would still be a leiomyosarcoma. And what we what we know from, from that sort of situation is that uh, at the time when the sarcoma is discovered, typically what we'll do is we'll get pictures of areas, CAT scan or PET scan, of areas that we know that the sarcoma may have spread to. And then people have surgery. And then in the future, if we see the sarcoma elsewhere, it can be sort of mysterious about how the sarcoma may have ended up there if it was removed previously. And what we know is that when we see sarcoma elsewhere in the body later in time, that sarcoma cells had already broken off from the main tumor at the time of diagnosis, but they were so small at that time that even though we took pictures uh, and followed with pictures with CAT scans, for, examples, uh, for example, uh, that those, that tumor may not have had enough time to grow big enough uh, for us to see it on pictures. So that would be a leiomyosarcoma and often may be, have some of the characteristics of the original leiomyosarcoma. That said, sometimes sarcomas that are elsewhere in the body that have spread can sometimes develop new characteristics that are uh, different from the original, that are in addition to some of the original characteristics of the leiomyosarcoma. Excellent. Thank you. And does anyone wish to add uh, Dr. Dwayne or Dr. Mal next to uh, Dr. Marion's excellent response here? No, I think it was perfect. Okay. Uh, nothing to add. Okay. And we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and um, I'm going to have, um, if Dr. Delaney would address this one. It's for stage four patients, is there a better time for clinical trials during treatment? earlier when you are healthier or later when you may be sicker? So if you could address this in a general way, Dr. Delaney. I'll make a couple of comments, and I'll also ask uh, Dr. Miriam to comment as well. As a general rule of thumb, uh, patients respond better to any cancer treatment when they are less sick, uh, and in particular, in the cancer setting, patients who have quite advanced cancer with significant uh, weight loss and poor nutritional status are, in fact, generally uh, poor candidates for any uh, treatment. They, they don't tolerate the treatments uh, as well, uh, and they're often less effective because I think, in part, we may rely on other uh, tumor-fighting mechanisms in the body, such as the patient's own immune response. So I think for patients who uh, present uh, with uh, stage 4 disease, which refers to disease that has spread uh, to distant sites beyond the primary tumor site, I think it's important to consider the best options uh, at the time of, of diagnosis. I'd also comment that there are we, we appreciate now there are different kinds of stage 4 disease. There are some sarcoma patients who will present with what we refer to as oligometastatic disease. That just means they only have metastatic disease in a, a small number of sites, one or two sites, that they can be cured. If, For example, if it's tumor spread to the liver or tumor spread to the lung, 
uh, by uh, surgical resection uh, or by uh, focused uh, radiation treatments. Uh, so um, I think it's important, again, to be seen uh, in a uh, sarcoma uh, center where you'll have access to uh, all of the uh, available uh, specialties. So, thank you. I, I just want to add also um, some additional thoughts about, about your question, which is, you know, I hear from patients that come to see me uh, that there's that there's a stereotype that if a provider recommends a clinical trial that uh, I, I think some patients hear clinical trial and they they may worry that that means that that there are not good options available uh, if the doctor is recommending a clinical trial. For me, I actually think of clinical trials as being really important options at, at all stages of of the treatment. Uh, clinical trials. Uh, can offer uh, opportunities to put, to have access to a medication that is maybe very promising for your type of sarcoma but has not yet been approved, for example, by the FDA. Uh, or there may be some sort of approach such as, I know Dr. Delaney was speaking, uh, had spoken about uh, previously that, you know, maybe we don't need to give as many treatments of radiation as we thought previously, and a shorter course of radiation might be appropriate. So I think at all stages of, of your um, your treatment, clinical trials are designed to, to ask questions and to ask questions whether the treatment that uh, we're investigating might be better or might be an additional option to currently available treatments. So in my mind, I do not think of clinical trials as something that uh, would be a consideration after you've exhausted the, the standard types of therapies. But I myself, whenever I'm meeting with a patient, I'm always trying to think of what clinical trials are available at every single moment uh, that we're working together. So thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Malnitz, did you want to add anything as well? Or? No, I think it's just, um, you know, oftentimes patients with a diagnosis of sarcoma, they uh, will see either a surgeon or a medical oncologist as their first physician uh, after the diagnosis. And I think uh, with, the, with the surgical consult, if that's the first person you see, uh, understanding how clinical trials may fit into that resection is, is important. Some of these trials are neoadjuvant trials, uh, comparing standard regimens that, that are typically given in the, in the adjuvant setting, but in the neoadjuvant setting. And, and if you go forward with resection, sometimes that'll, that'll impair your eligibility for some trials. So I think having that discussion, as Dr. Merriam uh, said, early in the course, in the diagnosis, and learning how they might fit in with your treatment plan is important, no matter which uh, physician you see first. And thank you. And um, there's a question actually for you, Dr. Malnex. Um, what does it mean when I hear a surgery will be formed in end-block resection? Sure. So an, an on-block resection uh, refers to a resection of the tumor itself with the adjacent normal uh, structures. So if that's in the extremity, uh, it's going to be muscle groups, maybe soft tissue such as fat, skin, or uh, our blood vessels, if it's in the retroperitoneum which, or the, the trunk, which is most commonly where that term is used, it means that the, the organs are removed with the tumor itself. So, for example, uh, a common tumor in the retroperitoneum is a liposarcoma, and these tumors encase the kidney. And so resection of the tumor uh, requires many times removing the kidney itself. We wouldn't resect the tumor and then go back and take the kidney out. We do it what's called on block, which means to remove it all in one piece. Um, and, and that's most commonly used, as I said, in the retroperitoneal or, or truncal tumors that require the resection of adjacent normal tissue. Thank you. 
Um, and um, I have a question, um, actually, uh, for uh, Dr. Miriam. Um, so, and it's a bit of a long question from one of our online participants. Um, but, uh, my son was diagnosed with pleomorphic sarcoma, uh, 716. He received three rounds of inpatient chemotherapy, limb salvaging surgery, and three more rounds of inpatient chemotherapy. He was subsequently diagnosed as osteosarcoma. He has had three clear scans. He is alive and walking, um, which were his oncologist goals. Is he no longer a soft tissue sarcoma survivor? What can we expect? And I would say that, again, Dr. Miriam, if you would address this perhaps in a more general perspective, it might be a question that many people wonder in terms of when they complete treatment. And then, of course, we do recommend that um, our caller go back to their treating healthcare team, of course. But so when we think about sarcomas, we we uh, we are en encompassing both the types of sarcomas that are soft tissue sarcomas uh, and bone sarcomas. So sarcomas that arise in the bone, or sarcomas that do not arise in the bone. So things like in the lining of blood vessel walls, uh, in muscles, in fat, uh, those sorts of, of locations. Um, specifically with the question of whether, it sounds like originally the thought was that this was a pleomorphic sarcoma from my understanding, and then later uh, the impression was this was an osteosarcoma. To highlight how uh, uh, challenging and, um, and heterogeneous uh, sarcoma is, is that just to comment that osteosarcomas can arise in the bone, but there's also a form of what we call extraosseous osteosarcoma. So that would be uh, something that a pathologist might call, call an osteosarcoma, but that actually develops not within bone. And we actually think in that situation that we might treat that type of tumor more like a soft tissue tumor rather than a bone tumor. So I bring all that up to say that as a general point that these can be quite first of all, complex to diagnose, as, as you've experienced. Uh, and secondly, they can also be, there are quite uh, important subtleties in terms of managing these uh, types of sarcomas. Um, so I, I apologize if I, I missed the last part of your, um, your uh, question, but I think that it sounds like that the providers that are taking care of him right now feel that they've given him a really excellent treatment, both locally, so for the tumor uh, itself, as well as the chemotherapy, which the goal of the chemotherapy would be to treat, uh, to hopefully treat, the idea is to try to treat sites of uh, sarcoma that might have broken off from the original tumor. That would be the goal of that. And it's appropriate to watch uh, anyone who's gone through a treatment um, for a sarcoma that's been localized to watch people closely in surveillance uh, as uh, Dr. Delaney and Dr. Molinex both um, described. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been extraordinary today. This has been an amazing uh, call today. I want to thank all of our participants who've asked such really uh, excellent questions and, and all of you who've been listening as well. Um, I do uh, want to just wrap this up just before we conclude by saying that I know there are some questions still not that we have not gotten to, so we could spend the whole rest of the afternoon on them. So I actually want to let you know that that's in these very important questions. And so I do want to suggest, first of all, that, of course, um, to go back to your treating healthcare team is always an option because they know everything about you and, and, of course, have all the records. But many of you I know like to seek out other sources of information, um, and um, like to have other places to get information. 
So I do uh, want to uh, certainly suggest that you can contact the National Cancer Institute, as I mentioned before, and they have both a clinical trial section and a, main, a number that you can contact and a website. Um, their main telephone number is 1-800-422-6237. And again, you'll get all this information after the call um, with your uh, evaluation form um, for your feedback. And we, there also is a website, www.cancer.gov. And the very nice thing about that website, and it's good for both people in the U.S. and internationally, is that it has a chat feature where you can post your question, and their information specialist will then track down the information for you and really have a back-and-forth dialogue with you in getting your question addressed so that you can then go to your healthcare team, perhaps with a little bit more information that you feel is quite credible. I also, of course, we are partnering with the Sarcoma Alliance and Sarcoma Foundation of America on this call today. So those are also wonderful resources for you to contact as well. And so just to be aware of those organizations as just being a, a, another source of getting information. Um, also, for those of you who wish to pursue getting any services from Cancer Care, um, you know, we have given you the phone number and our website, and you'll be getting that at the end of the call. You've had that information, and you'll be getting it again um, with the evaluation forms. We do ask you to spend a moment to complete the evaluation form. It takes just a moment, and we very much uh, actually depend on your feedback to some extent because you help to shape the programs. Um, sometimes you make recommendations of things we can change or topics that you'd like us to offer, and so take a moment to do that as well. That's really important. And I do want to just call out to you that we do have a program coming up which might be of interest to all of you. It's a general topic on mind-body techniques to cope with the stresses of cancer. And, of course, we do know that there are emotional and social and practical stresses related to dealing with cancer, and that's a program that's happening on November 15th again, um, uh, from 1.30 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and you'll be getting information about that. Now, as we conclude, we don't want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with sarcoma, with soft tissue sarcoma, with cancer in general. We want you to know that you're now part of a large number of resources that you can access that are technically at your fingertips, and you don't have to wait till there's a crisis to contact them. Um, your healthcare team, of course, to begin with, and then all of the other resources that we've mentioned today that are there um, to help you. Um, and so, um, and I know you're all from different parts of the country and world, and may at moments always feel like, gee, I just feel so alone, there's nobody there. And at those moments, you can recognize that there is this really large group of resources that you can call upon um, who actually may be able to be of enormous help to you. So I want to thank you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.